0: So that video gives a bit of a summary of where we 've gone the last uh, few weeks. We started with the problem uh, the philosophical problem of evil, the biblical problem of evil, and we looked at um, you know how god the Bible talks about how God is good uh, that evil exists that but God is all powerful uh, and how do those realities actually work themselves together and work themselves out and it 's a perplexing problem and then we looked in in the scriptures about how there's this uh, retributive theology, which we've called Parenting 101. If you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. If you do bad things, you're going to get punished. And how that was the understanding of the Jewish people. But as they worked their way through history, they they actually observed that that wasn't their reality. That as they were trying to be good, trying to basically outdo the other nations in their holiness, uh, they often were oppressed and they often suffered. And so they started asking the questions about, well, How does this actually work itself out? Last week, we looked at God's response to the problem of evil. And that He doesn't just sit back and look at what's happening in our world, but He actually sent His Son. He sent His response not in the form of an answer, a philosophical answer, but in the form of a person. And that this person has absorbed uh, the evil, the sin, the brokenness the hurt, into himself on the cross. And that we, it's a mystery of how it works itself out, but that Jesus demonstrated that ultimately death and suffering does not have the final word, but resurrection does. And that he was the first fruits of a new creation. And that he points our eyes not towards our present suffering, but beyond our present suffering, beyond the cross, in the hope of resurrection. And that has implications for us today as we follow this God, the suffering God, whose response is not just to ignore evil, but to embrace it um, and to turn it around. The cross, we use the phrase, the cross is like judo. It takes the attack of the enemy and actually turns it back on itself. Satan thought he had Jesus in a corner on the cross only to find out that the very thing that Satan was trying to do sealed his own fate. And Jesus rose victorious in the same way that God redemptively and creatively can use any type of suffering, any type of evil, for his good purposes. Which brings us to today. Imagine there's no evil. It's not easy to do. If God is good, imagine there is no evil. I want to start this conversation this morning talking about Buddha Buddha's entire philosophy centers around the answer to the problem of suffering. Whether you agree with him or whether you, don't, whether you don't, he's someone that actually dove quite deeply into this very question. Buddha's not a name, it's the title that means awakened one. Uh, this man was born of a prince, uh, was born of a king, he was a prince. Uh, and he lived in this royal palace for years, and his his dad actually kept him in the royal palace because he didn't want him to go into the real world and wanted to uh, ensure that his son would take on the lineage and become a king himself. But one day, uh, this man convinced the uh, charioteer at the palace to take him out into the real world so he could observe what was beyond the palace walls. And as he went out, he observed a number of things. First, he observed a sick man. And he asked his guide, uh, you know, what is this? He said, it's a sick man. And so he's asking questions, can anybody get sick? Yeah, anybody can get sick, even you can get sick. First time he'd seen someone with sickness. And they keep moving along, and he finds an old man in a similar conversation. What's that? Well, it's someone who's aging, who's old. Can anybody become old? And the answer was, everybody's going to become old. Even you will become old. And then they came across a dead man. And a similar conversation continued, and he realized that this was the fate of every human being, that everybody was going to die at some point. And this problem perplexed him. And then he found a Hindu mystic, and he asked questions, well, who is this? And his guide responded and explained that uh, this is someone who renounced all worldly possessions in order to become wise. And in that moment, the one we would come to know as the Buddha, decided to become a Hindu mystic and to become wise. And what was driving him is he wanted to understand and to answer the riddle of death, of suffering, of aging. And so he became a Hindu mystic and he renounced everything. But as he continued in this way, he... He felt like he didn't become any wiser, and after fruitless years of this life, he decided on a middle middle way. He wanted just enough food, just enough sleep, just enough comforts as he needed, no more, no less. He didn't indulge, nor did he torture himself. He took a decent meal for the first time in years, and most of the other mystics left him, except for five who stuck around him and would later become his first disciples. And one day he sat under a tree, and he was determined not to leave this tree until he could answer the riddle of of suffering. And so he sat there, and he pondered this riddle until uh, the legend goes that he stood and said, when when he answered the riddle, when he felt like he had the answer, he stood up and said, I am Buddha. And at that moment, he explained his four noble truths. The first truth is that life is suffering. We are are, um, born into suffering. We live in suffering. We die in suffering, that all of life is suffering. To have what you wish you hadn't had is suffering. To not have what you want to have is suffering. So this is what I want over here. That's what I don't want. If this is what I want, but this is actually what I experience, this gap in between is suffering. And he observed that every person has these desires to have something they don't have or they receive something they didn't want, and that gap in between those two realities is suffering. So that that was his first noble truth, and the second comes out of that, that the cause of suffering therefore is desire. If if we can actually cut out this middle space between where I am and where I'd like to be then we can actually cut out suffering from the human experience. So desire creates a gap between itself and satisfaction and that gap is suffering. So his Which is the third point of of his Noble Truth that the way to end suffering is to end desire, and that is what we know as nirvana. So, Buddhism moves towards nirvana, which is eliminating the gap between eliminating desire, therefore, eliminating suffering. So, the answer for Buddha is to desire nothing. And so, the fourth Noble Truth is that we end desire through, he had this eightfold path of ego reduction that took a lifetime but they would work throughout their life to eliminate all human desire so that they could live without suffering and therefore enter nirvana it's buddhism and it's fascinating and it's it's a intriguing answer to the problem of suffering but there's something about it that leaves me wanting that you can't help but see Buddhism as the cure that actually kills the patient. It answers the problem in a way, but it leaves the, pa- the patient in a state of nothingness. And I believe that Jesus had a different plan. But before we get there, let's go back in time um, God gave Israel a sacred calendar with the sacred law at the Mount of Sinai. So at Mount Sinai, where Moses was, we know that God, you've heard of the Ten Commandments and there was a whole law, the Torah, that came with that. Uh, God gave Moses the Torah, but at that same time, he also gave Moses the sacred calendar that every week there had to be a Sabbath day. There had to be resting on the seventh day. And when they rested, when they didn't work, it gave a chance for them to rejuvenate, but also gave a chance for the land to, uh, to rest. They had annual festivals that represented different things that they celebrated throughout the year. They had Sabbath years, and every seventh year, they would actually rest for a whole year from working the land, and they would have to live off of The the crops and the the fruits that they had uh, worked towards for the first six years and then rest for the whole seventh year. So they had this rhythm in their calendar. Sabbath days, annual festivals, Sabbath years. And then they had something that they referred to as the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee happened every seven Sabbath years. So seven times seven, our math wizards say 49. Thank you. Again, I failed math a lot, so I need all the help I get. 49 years. So every 50 years, the the Jewish people would, would practice the year of Jubilee. At least that was the idea. And what did that mean? In the year of Jubilee, a silver trumpet would be blown, and three things would happen. Debts would be forgiven... So if you had, anybody want their debts forgiven? Now put up your hand if you'd like your debts forgiven. Come on now. All right. I know I would. Debts forgiven. So if you held on for 50 years, it's like I'm just going to acquire debt for the next 50 years. Uh, and that 50 year, your debt would be forgiven. Uh, when the trumpet blew on the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free. So if you were working for somebody as a slave, in that moment... That relationship, that transaction between slave and owner would be eliminated and the slave would become a free man. The third thing that would happen in the year of Jubilee is that land would be returned to the original owners. So every 50 years, there was like a reset button. Like God would hit the reset button, debts are forgiven. Everybody becomes equal again, and all the land is redistributed again. It was kind of like anybody played the game Monopoly. All right, so imagine you played a game in Monopoly. I don't know why you would, but if you did play the game of Monopoly, <laughs> and you you won that game, you know you get a few of your friends around, you go play the game, and then a few days later you say, "Hey, let's go play the game Monopoly again," except all the pieces actually stayed where they were when he ended. And he started the game there. Well, the person that won the game would just keep winning over and over and over and over again. And so the year of Jubilee is like this reset button, like a game of Monopoly. It's like we're starting all over again. And it's going to ensure that the winners don't keep winning and the losers don't keep losing. And then there was a prophet named Isaiah so actually before that, we don't actually know how many times the Jewish people practiced the year, practiced the year of Jubilee. Um, some people don't think they practiced it at all. Some, some scholars think it might have happened you know, once or twice, but over time, uh, Israelites stopped practicing it, and my guess is because the people on top didn't really like the idea of starting again. So 900 years after this sacred calendar was given to the Israelite people, Isaiah shows up on the scene. And he gives a prophetic word. He prophesied that the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee is coming, and that someday a Spirit-anointed person would come who would bring with him the restoration of the Jubilee. And then sometime shortly after that, in the book of Daniel, we read in chapter 9, uh, he refers to this, this event, and it's kind of like this, uh, this very, uh, lots of imagery type of language, apocalyptic language we would call it. Uh, but he, he uses the number, thinking of this moment when this person would come and restore the jubilee, and he refers to it as the moment of 70 times 7. 70 times 7. And, and there's been much discussion and debate over what that means and people kind of calculating all sorts of things on what that means. But what I would suggest it means is that Daniel is saying there's a time coming, and it's not just a year of jubilee, but it's the jubilee of jubilees, that it's a 70 times 7 jubilee. And if people, you know, go 70 times, 70 times 7 is four hundred ninety. You see how I did that? That That's pretty good, hey? Uh, 490, and you're counting out 490 years and trying to predict all of these things, and people have done that with the book of Daniel. I think you missed the point. What Daniel is saying, there's one who's coming that is going to bring the jubilee of jubilees. Everything that, even though we have failed to even practice this little act of jubilee, there's something even beyond jubilee that's going to happen, and it's the jubilee of jubilees. That there's going to be this new way of living, this new creation, this new world, where everything is reset, 600 years after Isaiah's prophetic word, the G- Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. Jesus becomes baptized. And after he becomes baptized, he goes into the wilderness. Uh, he's tempted for 40 days. And then in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He begins his earthly ministry at that moment. And the first words that he utters at the beginning of his ministry is an echo of Isaiah 61. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of jubilee. Then he rolled up the scroll, Luke says, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him And then he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Jesus is saying that one who is going to bring the jubilee of jubilees is here. Jubilee is not an idea. Jubilee is not a year. Jubilee is a person. And then when you read the Gospels, you realize that everywhere Jesus went, he brought jubilee with him. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed good news to the poor. He set prisoners free. He recovered sight for the blind. He brought relief to those who were oppressed. Jesus is Jubilee. Now, if we return to the concept of Buddhism for a second, Buddha saw that suffering is created by selfish desire, Right so that gap of selfish desire where I am and what I'd actually prefer in this middle ground is actually where we experience suffering. So most people try to fill that gap by acquiring all that they want in order to have those desires met so that they won't experience suffering. I want more stuff, I want more comfort, I want more security. That's the way of our world. That's the answer of the world to the problem of suffering. Close the gap by acquiring more, by comforting ourselves, by trying to make ourselves more secure. But we know, don't we, because we've tried it, that it doesn't really work. That no matter how much you acquire, you're still left with that question, well, I still want more. And how much is more? I don't know, just a little bit more. And we always want a little bit more. And we think that that's the answer. But in our more sober moments, we realize that this is the definition of insanity, that we're acquiring more to try to eliminate suffering in our lives, but we can't. But why do we keep doing it? Buddhism answers in the opposite way. It says we're actually going to eliminate that gap by desiring nothing. And if we can actually figure out a way to desire nothing, then we can live at peace and we won't experience suffering. but I think Jesus gives us a third way. The goal is not to desire nothing. The answer to suffering is not to desire nothing. That is not Christian and it's not biblical. People that desire nothing at least they did not denial of God's good creation. And I would say that evil is the force of anti-creation. It's the force of nothingness. It's the force of destruction. It's the force of eliminating the things that God put in place, the goodness that he put in place in the beginning. God created the world. He said it was very, very good. And I think evil tries to destroy that which God has created. So the answer is not to move towards nothingness, to destroy all desire. But yet, many people who claim to follow Jesus promote this type of thinking that uh, they misunderstand the Bible, and you've probably heard this: that Jesus is going to come back and destroy the world. Well, that's actually not true. Uh, you know, it's referred to a little bit in Matthew 24, and people twist Matthew 24. You know, it talks about this: there's two guys working in a field. Jesus comes back, and the one is taken. Two women are at work, and one is taken, and people have read into that this this weird idea that jesus is going to come back and take all the christian people with him take them away out of this broken and terrible world into some spiritual utopia somewhere else that is not the biblical story and in fact in matthew 24 when it's talking about it it compares it to noah and what happens in noah the people that are taken away are the good guys or the bad guys the bad guys the idea of Noah, the story of Noah, was actually this Jesus or God trying to recreate, to start over again with Noah and his family, a new creation. This is what Matthew 24 is referring to, not that Jesus is going to take us away from this world, not that he's going to destroy the world, but that he actually wants to leave us here to be a part of the new creation. And that he's going to extract all evil and destruction pain and suffering from the world. Nowhere in the New Testament does the end of the world bring about the second coming of Christ. Nowhere does the second coming of Christ mean the end of the world. The New Testament looks forward in, the, in actually the very reverse sense, that the second coming of Christ will bring the end of destruction and suffering, and he will renew the world. So if the answer is not to acquire as much as we can to close the gap in suffering, Or to deny everything so that we won't suffer, what's the answer of Jesus? And this is this is what I think part of the answer is. Jesus, the saints, the Bible, they give us a third road. It's that we like Buddhism, I think Buddhism got it half right. We deny our own will. We deny our selfish will. In fact, Jesus says this a couple of times in Matthew 10, verse 39. It says, Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's kind of like Buddhism. You gotta die to your own will and your own desire. Yes. He says something similar in Matthew 16:25. It's almost the exact same thing. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Right. So don't just try and acquire stuff. Don't try and hang on to your life, but deny your life. Whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. You know, The Apostle Paul would go on to say something similar. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. I've died to myself. But then he says, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Here's a fascinating scripture, Colossians 1 verse 24, listen to this. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. There's so much packed into that verse, I'm going to read it one more time. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard, in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. Just as this is my body, so the body of Christ, the church, is Christ's body. Just as this is Matt's body, you know, it's nice. I think. My wife agrees with me. Just as this is my bod so is the church the body of Jesus. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. What Paul is saying is that the body of Jesus is not done suffering yet. Jesus was crucified on the cross and suffered, and in that moment came out victorious in the resurrection, but that the body of Jesus, his church, is still in the midst of suffering because it's still accomplishing something in this world. And Jesus, for the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Talks about that in, in Hebrews. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the, the cross. That Jesus had a dream, Jesus had a vision, that Jesus was looking forward to the future and because of that future, he actually received the cross. And I want to talk about vision, about our imagination, about hope. If you turn to Revelation 21, it reads this. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And for those of you who are disappointed, that's like, I like the sea, I like the water, I, don't, I want sea. The sea, is, sea is a biblical metaphor from the beginning of creation all the way to revelation of evil, of chaos, of a world of unsettledness. And here in Revelation it says there was no longer any sea, there was no longer this chaos, there was no longer this evil. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, a beautifully, dressed, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen? There will be no more death. Amen. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Wow. Wow. Who wants to live in a world like that? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. Is it, does that appeal to anybody? Yeah. And so Jesus, he, for the joy set before him, for this new heavens and this new earth, this, this imagination and vision that he would received from the Father, endured the cross because he knew there was a better day coming, which made sense to his, which, which brought sense to his suffering in that moment. All of a sudden, the cross was seen not as the end, but as part of the journey towards the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22. Let's keep imagining this world together. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, a chapter later. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, any evil, any consequences of evil, any suffering. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. Again, night being illustrative of this world of evil. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. For the joy set before him, Jesus receives and understands the cross. In fact, Romans 8, sorry, there's a lot of scripture this morning, but I I want to incite our imagination. Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. that sound familiar? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Romans eight eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. It's not even you and I that just long for this new creation, this new earth. The whole world longs for it. For the creation was subjected to ref- frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they see? Another way of asking the question, who is actually looking into the future for their hope? Not just looking at what's right in front of them, but looking past what's right in front of them, past the suffering, past the cross. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Wow. The imagination, the dream of God, the new creation, the new earth, the jubilee of jubilees that Jesus brought in his own person that was an anticipation of the coming world which God is bringing about. Romans 8 talks about labor. Anybody here been through labor? i got to put my hand down. Sorry. Anybody? (laughs) I I have not. I I haven't. Well, I've been through it, and it was rough, but uh, uh, as an observer... Definition of labor is that, uh, you know, in the dictionary it says labor. Definition one, work, especially hard physical work. Definition one. Definition two, the process of childbirth, especially the period from the start. Actually, I don't need to get into the details that it says. Uh, <laughs> but it's the process of childbirth. And, uh, you know, I've been, I got three kids, three boys whom I love and the uh, so I've I've been in the labor and delivery room three times, and Joel's labor just seemed like it took forever. It was really difficult for me. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a tough couple of days. Had to wait there and sit and read magazines like for hours and hours. And we went to the hospital once, they told us to go away. We came back the next day, and I'm just like, come on already. Tough, tough on me, but... Um, and leading up to Joel's labor and some of the other kids for that matter, um, you know, you have these, I think, what is it called, Braxton Hicks, is that? Uh, these, and these, it's like a fake labor, it kind of fakes you out, right? And, uh, sorry, I'm talking like I experienced it. My wife, you know, she's going through these labor pains, um, and it's not even like the real thing yet. Uh, and Joel took forever, and then we had, and then we had Luke, and I'm like, I'm not doing that again. Like when, when Luke was coming, I'm I'm not gonna go sit at the hospital for two days. Like, Lisa, consider me in your labor. Um, <laughs> so we waited, and we waited, and she's like, I think we should go to the hospital. I'm like, remember last time? She's like, Let's sleep through the night. Um, at least let me sleep through the night, and we'll get up in the morning, and. You know, we'll go, and, you know, she wakes me up early. She's like, I think we got to get going. I'm like, you're sure? Like, you're really sure? She's like, yeah. And we get to the hospital, and, you know, they check her in, and they're like, it's like time. <laughs> We're like, what? They're like, yeah, it's time. We got to phone your doctor. Let's get you in the emergency, into the delivery room. Um, the doctor couldn't make it to the hospital in time. They get some um, resident doctor who has never delivered a baby in his life um, who runs in there, and like Lisa's holding on, she's like, like the baby's wanting to come into the world, and the doctor barely gets in the room, and it's it was like, uh, you know, he sits down just in time for the the hut, and he gets the <laughs> gets the little football, and he's, you know, he looks all awkward, he has no idea what he's doing, and and it's funny these nurses who are in the deliver, uh, labor and delivery unit do this. Hundred times a day, but they can't receive the baby. But the guy who's never done it before gets to be the one to receive the baby. It's this awkward thing to watch as they're trying to explain to him what to do and <laughs> what to cut and what not to cut and all that stuff. But so, but labor makes sense because we understand. Um, we understand the end of the suffering. And in fact. As I was preparing this message, I realized I don't even like the word suffering. I like the word labor. And some of you women are like, no, no, let's not use the word labor. Uh, But labor actually is a more biblical term to understand our suffering in. That labor is the language of Romans 8, that the whole creation labors. And that we ourselves are laboring because we believe that God is giving birth to something new. And sometimes it feels like Braxton Hicks and we're like, when is this thing ever going to come? But we have these moments where we see glimpses of it and it comes very quickly and we're like, that was, I just saw a glimpse of the new creation, the new earth. I saw a glimpse of Jubilee. And that is the biblical imagination, the Jesus imagination that we as followers of Jesus need to have. I want to play an imagination game with you this morning. I want you to imagine a purple hippopotamus. Just imagine in your mind a purple hippopotamus. Now stop imagining a purple hippopotamus. Whatever you do, don't think about a purple hippopotamus. And maybe it's not just one purple hippopotamus. (laughs) Maybe it's purple hippopotami and there's multiple purple hippopotamies. But stop thinking about it. Like don't just don't think about the purple hippopotamus. Has, has anybody been is anybody able not to think about a purple hippopotamus right now? Is there anybody who's having a really hard time getting the purple hippopotamus out of your mind right now? It's difficult because we're thinking about not thinking about it, but we end up thinking about it. Let me use another example. Think about um you know vanilla ice cream with some maybe chocolate sauce or caramel sauce on it it's a hot summer day now stop thinking about that ice cream just stop imagining it stop imagining yourself just taking in its delicious vanilla flavor especially in that waffle cone that just gets almost better the longer the vanilla sits in there and it just, ah, it's mouth-watering. Do not think about that, whatever you do. And let me ask you a question right now. How many of you are, th- how many of you are thinking about a purple hippopotamus right now? Ah, <laughs> uh, it didn't quite work. Most of you, if you put up your hand, you know, are not, put up your hand if you're not thinking about a purple hippopotamus when I was talking about the ice cream. The truth is that our imagination is formed not just by um, what we desire, but also the things that we don't desire. And when we, when we look at our world, we, we are inundated with suffering. We're inundated with evil. We're inundated with with news, with stories, with experiences, with family, with neighbors, with ourselves, of stories of suffering, stories of disappointment, stories of experiencing this gap between where we'd like to be and where we are. And if we're not careful, it's the only thing that forms our imagination. If we're not careful, it becomes the only thing we start to think about, the only thing we fear, the only thing we dwell on, and it starts to form our lives. And the Bible and Jesus tell us to take captive every thought. It tells us to think about what you think about. That even though the whole world is maybe talking about purple hippopotamize, we're actually going to think about ice cream. And that's not to deny reality, but that's actually to look beyond the cross, beyond the current suffering, and imagine a world that's different than it is. That the answer to the problem of suffering is not not to suffer. The trouble with imagining the future world is that we've all been given the wrong impression. We, we, we imagine this heaven, this popularly conceived idea that I mentioned, of eternity being like some spiritual utopia where God takes us away and we listen to boring sermons forever and ever, eating. Philadelphia cream cheese on the clouds. That is not the biblical picture of heaven. Thank God you don't have to listen to me for all eternity. When this life is done, you don't have to listen to me anymore. The new heavens and the new earth, which Isaiah, Revelation, Jesus referred to, gives us this picture of a new creation, a new physical creation. In Revelation 21 and 22, we're invited to imagine a community a great multitude of people in the city, in this new Jerusalem with Jesus there and that every type of dehumanized behavior, every type of evil no longer exists in that place. And this community is a place of dazzling beauty. It's a place of healing. It's a place... Of healing not just for people but for the earth and for the nations. And to imagine a community of beauty and healing is to take a large step towards seeing in our mind's eye the world which God intends to bring about through his death and resurrection in Jesus. This is the world to which we are to direct our spirit-given energies today in the gap in between. The New Testament invites us then to imagine a new world as beautiful this healing community, to envision it, to fill our minds and our hearts with it, to live our lives with energy towards it, to believe that there's something beyond death and decay, to hold in our mind's eye this world that's reborn, a world that's set free from slavery, from corruption, in which the, win, the winners always win, the losers always lose, free to be truly what it was made to be in the very beginning when God said, this is very good. As Paul insists in Romans 8, all of our present life, our sufferings are an anticipation for the future one, that the Spirit is groaning within creation, within every follower of Jesus as it is in childbirth, as, in, as it is in labor, that we believe there is something beyond this current state that's worth looking forward to, that's worth enduring for, and that in some mysterious way, even our present sufferings are participating in the new creation that is to come. So today, as we conclude, I'm going to invite the worship team. Today, the challenge for you and I is to live with that imagination today. And the funny thing is, the question is not, you know, are we suffering or should we suffer or why are we suffering? But the question is, to what end are we suffering? See, the third option that Jesus gives is not to deny desire, but it's to change our desire, to desire this new kingdom, to to, to desire this jubilee of jubilees. And when we're over here and we feel like God's jubilee, his new kingdom, his new heavens and new earth is over there, there's a gap in between still. And because there's a gap in between where we are and where God's bringing us, there is suffering. Suffering. But that is the suffering of every Jesus follower that God invites us to participate in with Jesus. So how do we live? You live in a way, you live as citizens of that future world and the present world. You live in this new jubilee that forgives debts, that sets people free, whether that's spiritually or physically you know I think of what we're doing with the refugees family that's coming from Syria or sorry we haven't gone there yet but we're talking about that, that that would be an answer in some way of us trying to live in a way of Jubilee today that we do prayer ministry trying to help people set free not even from physical things but emotional spiritual things that are oppressing them even today that we live in a spirit of Jubilee today suffering because of relational follow, because of disease, because of, you know, other things going on in your lives, and you could just focus on that suffering and think that that's the end, or you could view it as the cross and view the new heavens and the new earth, the joy set before you beyond the suffering, and believe in some mysterious way, just like God told Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, that what the Satan has intended for harm, what my enemy intended for harm, God's actually going to use to bring about good. I don't know how. I choose to believe that. And that's why the, the New Testament over and over again tells us to live out the three things of faith, hope, and love. Well, if you don't want to suffer, don't hope. If you don't want to suffer, don't love. If you don't want to suffer, don't have faith. In some ways, it would be easier in some ways, it would be easier to be that Buddhist that says, I'm going to deny all those things because loving hurts too much, hoping hurts too much, having faith hurts too much. But Jesus says, you've got to embrace that suffering because that's a holy, sanctified, beautiful, redemptive type of suffering that God's actually calling us as followers of Jesus to embrace. That we're not okay with the way the world is, that we're going to labor through our suffering right now because we believe that there's a better time and God's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him and bring about a new creation. And to that end, we say, amen. Amen.